Psalm 20, and if you've got a church Bible, it's page 546. Psalm 20. May the Lord answer you when you are in distress. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and grant you support from Zion. May he remember all your sacrifices and accept your burnt offerings. May he give you the desire of your heart and make all your plans succeed. May we shout for joy over your victory and lift up our banners in the name of our God. May the Lord grant all your requests. Now this I know, the Lord gives victory to his anointed. He answers him from his heavenly sanctuary with the victorious power of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They are brought to their knees and fall, but we rise up and stand firm. Lord, give victory to the king. Answer us when we call. Thanks, Saskia. Uh, we're not going to do opposites anymore because that's just going to going to mess with my head and probably going to mess with your head as well. So, um, as Graham said, we're taking a bit of a break from the One Peter series today. We were supposed to be having Al Stewart, who is the national director of the Fellowship of Evangelical Churches, uh, Independent Evangelical Churches, the FIEC. That's the fellowship that our church is part of. It's a group of like-minded churches from around Australia who are committed to serving Jesus and to reaching Australia for Christ. And Al was supposed to be here doing a men's talk last night and preaching this morning, but obviously because of COVID, he's not able to be here. So you get me instead, which um, you're probably really excited about anyway. Thanks, Jordan. Um, and today we're going to be looking at this psalm, Psalm 20. It's a psalm with lots of big prayers, uh, prayers for protection, uh, prayer for help and support, a uh, prayer that God would give this person, the desires of their heart. Uh, and the question that we want to be thinking about today is, what does that mean for us? Uh, how do we pray this prayer that's written in the Bible for us? How do we pray? What, how do we understand those prayers? And uh, what does it mean for us to pray those prayers? So that's what we're reflecting on today. Let's pray and ask God uh, to give us insight as we think about that. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, you speak to us in your word. We thank you too that you also give us prayers that we can pray. Lord, uh, sometimes we don't know what to pray and we need your help. We thank you that the Holy Spirit often intercedes for us with words, uh, with groans that words cannot express. And uh, thank you, Lord, that the Holy Spirit too gives us insight in words and in psalms like these so that we can also understand how to pray to you and what to pray for. So, Father, we ask that as we reflect on this this morning that you would grow us in being people who speak with you and who cry out to you and who trust you. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. So, the first thing that we need to understand about this psalm is that it's not actually a personal prayer. It's a prayer actually for the king. It's a prayer from the community of God's people and they're praying for the king. They're praying for the king's success. The sacrifice that they're asking God to remember are the king's sacrifices. The desires that they're asking God to fulfill are the king's 
desires. And you can see that most clearly in verse 6 and verse 9. Verse 6 expresses trust that God will grant victory to the king or to the anointed. Verse 9 explicitly calls for God to give victory to the king. And because this psalm then is not a psalm directly that we might pray for ourselves, but a prayer that the people were praying for the king, because of that, what I want to do this morning with you is to work through the psalm on its own terms, first of all, to work through each of the verses, and then to think about how do we move from this psalm that was about a king in the Old Testament, how do we move from that to us today? And then we'll go back through the psalm and think about what does that mean for us? How do we apply this psalm to us today? So the psalm on its own terms, how we move from the psalm to today and then what this psalm means for us today. So first of all then, thinking about the psalm on its own terms, it's divided into two sections. Uh, maybe in your Bible you might be able to see something uh, of that roughly. There's, in my Bible there's a little break paragraph breaks in it and it's roughly divided into two sections the first section is from verse one to five and it contains seven requests or seven prayers the second section is in verses six to eight and that contains not prayers but expressions of trust so lord we trust that you'll do this and then in the last verse there's a kind of a final prayer lord give victory to the king answer us when we call so Thinking about that first block, first of all, there's these seven requests. The first two requests are in verse 1. Therefore, protection and deliverance. May the Lord answer you when you're in distress. It's request 1. May the name of God, the God of Jacob, protect you. So the people are in distress. God's people are in distress. The king is in distress. They're being attacked or oppressed. And so what they're doing is they're praying for God's deliverance. The people recognize as the starting place, that it is through God's help that they will be delivered from whatever they're facing. It's not, first of all, through the king, it's through God's help, but God will work through the king. And so they're praying that God would do that, that he would work through the king. The second two requests are in verse 2. They're a request, again, for God's help. May he send you help from the sanctuary and grant you support from Zion. In a way, those two prayers are very much like the first two. They're asking for God's help. But if there's a development here, the development is that there's a move towards the personal presence of God. God's help comes from the sanctuary. Uh, It comes from Zion. Zion was another name for Jerusalem. So the people are asking or recognizing that if God is to help them, then he has to come in person to help them. Uh, Help and support is not something that God throws over the fence to us, but something that God brings to us with himself. The third two requests in verse 3 are for God to remember the king's sacrifices. May he remember all your sacrifices and accept your burnt offerings. Uh, This plea grounds those other requests for God's help in sacrifice and in forgiveness the people understand that in order for God to act on their behalf they need God's forgiveness God needs to accept the sacrifices that the king has made on their behalf the king made on their behalf through the priests 
The people recognise that they and God are not natural friends, but natural enemies because of their sin. In fact, oftentimes in the Old Testament, the people were judged or conquered or attacked because of their sin against God. God would hand them over to their enemies in order that they might experience the consequences of their rebellion against him. And so as the people come to God and pray that he would deliver them, they recognize that for God to act on their behalf, there needs to be this reconciliation between them and God. There needs to be forgiveness. God needs to remember and accept the sacrifices that the king has made on behalf of his people. The fourth pair of requests are in verse 4, and they are for God to give the king success. May he give you the desire of your heart and make all your plans succeed. That's paired with the final request in verse second half of verse 5. May the Lord grant all your requests. Again, the your is referring to a single individual. It's referring to the king. And in that uh, light... Uh, sorry, and then, and then, sorry, in the middle of those two uh, sections, there's a, another prayer which says, May we shout for joy over your victory and lift up our banners in the name of our God. So may he give you the desires of your heart, may he grant you all your requests, and in the middle there's this prayer for the king's success. In other words, this prayer for, these prayers for God to give the king the desires of his heart is kind of, it's not, an unconstrained prayer, if you like, for the king, you know, praying for an enormous box of Turkish delight or something like that. But it's, it's a prayer that God would do whatever the king desires in order that they might win the victory. Do whatever the king wants, the people are praying, so that we win. Whatever plan the king has in his heart... To bring victory to this people, Lord, please fulfill that desire. So that's the first half of the psalm. They're the seven prayers that the people pray. Then in the second half of the psalm, the people express confidence in God. So verse 6, they express confidence that God will answer. Now this I know, the Lord gives victory to his anointed, to his king. He answers him from his heavenly sanctuary with the victorious power of his right hand. Remember, they prayed for help to come from the sanctuary. They're trusting that that help will come. This I know, they say. Even though they're praying for God to do these things, they trust as well that God will do them. There's no doubt in their mind that he will. In verse 7, they express confidence in God over and above everything else. They say, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They could have looked at the army that the king was amassing. They could have looked at the chariots that he had and thought to themselves, wow, these are like the best chariots that anyone has in the ancient Near East. But the people say, no, we don't trust in those things. We don't trust in our horses and our chariots. We trust in God. In verse 8, they express their confidence in final victory. They are brought to their knees and fall. We rise up and stand firm. The people trust that at the end of the day, their enemies will be defeated and they will be delivered. So that's the meaning of the psalm when it was first written. 
It was a psalm written by David for the people to help them pray for him as their king. And to understand what the psalm means for us, we have to begin there. We have to understand, first of all, what it meant for them. What it meant for those original readers, even though their context is very different to ours. They had a king, they had chariots and horses, they were being attacked by nations around them. It's a very different context, but we have to understand that first. And then we have to move to today, understanding how the psalm applies given the fulfilment of all God's promises in the person and work of Jesus. So we have to understand how Jesus fulfills this psalm and how it finds its fulfilment in him. What does, what does that mean? Well, first of all, what doesn't it mean? It means that we can't just take this psalm and pray it for ourselves. We can't just take this psalm and, and pray, Lord, give me the desires of my heart. Give me victory over my enemies. There might be other psalms, perhaps, that teach us to pray in similar ways to that, but that's not what this psalm is about. This psalm was written about the king, and you and I are not the king. Jesus is the king. He's the true, he's the ultimate descendant of David. He's the one around whom God is gathering a people. He's the one who's leading a people. This psalm is first and foremost about Jesus. And so this psalm is first and foremost a prayer for his success and for his victory, not our success and our victory. And it's an expression of trust that Jesus will be victorious. To understand then how we move from that to us, we have to understand how the people in the time of David, related to the king. What was the relationship between the king and the people? You see, at the heart of this psalm, and indeed at the heart of the Old Testament, and at the heart of the Bible, is the idea that the success of the people is bound up with the success of the king. The success of the people is bound up with the success of the king. If the king wins, they win. And if the king loses, they lose. That's quite different from the way that we think about the world naturally. We often think about the world in terms of us winning or losing as individuals. Am I winning today? Will I win today? Will everything work out for me today? We tend to view it through the prism of our own self-experience. But in the Bible, success and victory or loss is always bound up with the king and the people who are swept up with him. In our understanding of the world, we are often at the centre. Am I winning or am I losing? In the Bible... God and God's king are at the centre. This psalm challenges us to re-centre our world from ourselves to be a a world centred around the Lord Jesus Christ. If Jesus is the ultimate king, then our success, your success, my success, depends on him. If he wins and we're linked up with him, then we win because he wins. He wins. 
And if he loses, if that were possible, then we would lose too. And so to understand this psalm, then, we have to understand that. That this psalm is not a prayer about us and your success and my success, but it's about Jesus' success and about God's success. And through that, the success and victory of all God's people. So that helps us to frame how we think about this psalm. So what does it mean for us? How do we apply it to us today? Well, first of all, we ought to be praying for Jesus' victory. The most important thing that we can pray for is not our own success in the ventures that we have, the most important thing that we can be praying for is the victory and the success of Jesus' mission and Jesus' kingdom. Their victory was bound up with the king. Our victory is bound up with the king as well. And the best thing for us is that Jesus' kingdom be established more and more. That actually completely reframes what we think about and how we think about our victory, our success in life. The greatest goal is not, indeed, whether we fail or win in our ambitions. The greatest, the most important thing, is whether Christ and his kingdom is being established. And that is the best thing for us. The best thing that can happen to our world is that the reign of Jesus be established more and more in this world. The best thing for us is that the gospel go out to more and more places, that more and more people flood into the kingdom of God. The best thing for us is that more and more of our fellow Australians come to bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. The best thing for us is that the reign of Christ be established over this country and over this world. The best thing for us is that Jesus has won and will win the victory over death and Satan, the world and our sinful flesh. It's helpful for us to stop and think about how much time we spend praying for the victory of Jesus' kingdom versus how much time we spend praying for the victory in our own little kingdoms. But the best thing for us is not for our kingdom to succeed and our dreams and aspirations to find realisation, but the best thing for us is that the Lord Jesus Christ's kingdom be established. Because if we're linked up with him, then that is the best thing the best outcome for us. You might pray for this or that thing in your life to work out. You might pray for that interview, for that job to be successful, for that home loan to be approved or whatever it might be. You might pray that when you teach Sunday school next that it will go well or when you lead your growth group or whatever it is. And they're good things to pray for but we need to not make that the centre of our prayers and the centre of our life. The centre of our prayers must be the victory of Christ and his kingdom. Second, we should also pray that God would grant Jesus 
the desires of his heart. That might seem like a strange thing to pray, that God would grant, that the Father would grant the Son the desires of his heart. But actually, uh, Jesus teaches us to pray for that in the Lord's Prayer. He teaches us to pray, your will be done. He teaches us to pray that God's will would be done on earth. The temptation for us is to pray that God would grant us the desires of our own hearts, but we need to learn to ask that God's will would be done on earth rather than ours. Maybe there's a job that you'd love to be doing or a place you'd like to be living. It's not wrong to ask for God to fulfill those desires. God is so gracious and compassionate that sometimes he does that. But the greatest thing, the best thing, is not what we desire, but what Christ desires. You might want that job, but perhaps Christ desires something else for you. It's a better thing for his desire to be fulfilled than for your own desire to be fulfilled. You might want to live in that place. You've got your heart set on living in such a place. But perhaps God wants you to live somewhere else. Perhaps he wants you to live on the other side of the world, in a foreign country, making the gospel known. God's desire is better than our own desire. You might want your suffering to be over. But perhaps Christ desires something else for you. Perhaps Christ's desire is that through that suffering you're transformed more and more into the image of Jesus. Perhaps that his desire is that through that suffering, others around you experience the overflowing comfort of Christ. You might want to live for another 40 years or 50 years, whatever it might be. Perhaps Christ desires something else for you. Perhaps Christ desires that your life will be taken from you within the year. The best thing that we can pray for is not our own desires to be fulfilled, but Christ's desires for us, for his world. That's what the people were praying. That's what we need to learn to pray as well. Whatever it takes, Lord, whatever the king desires for victory to come, give him that desire. Third, we pray on the basis of Jesus' sacrifice for us. The people in Psalm 20 prayed that God would remember the king's sacrifice that God would forget all their sin and that God would deliver them. And we need God to do that too. If we want God to act on our behalf, we need to trust uh, that God would accept the sacrifice that Jesus has made on our behalf. We don't have a right to expect God to answer us. We don't have a right to be swept up in the victory of uh, the King, the Lord Jesus Christ. But through the sacrifice of Jesus... We're reconciled to God, brought into his family, born again by the Holy Spirit. And God acts for us, even though we don't deserve it. It's easy for us to fall into the trap of just expecting that God will be on our side. We think that God's chief mission in life is to make us Happy, that some sociologists have called it moralistic therapeutic deism. The most important part of that is therapeutic. That is, God's main mission in life is to make us feel good about ourselves, to give us what we want. 
But God's job is not to get us out of a tight scrape. God doesn't owe us anything except condemnation. We've rejected him. We're his enemies. We fought against him. What hope do we have for God to be on our side? The hope that we have, this psalm says, is that God remember the sacrifice that Jesus has made on our behalf. Why should the king win the victory for us? Why should we be caught up in the victory of Jesus? Because we are reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ, through his death and his sacrifice on our behalf. We pray for the king's victory. We pray for the king's desires to succeed. We pray that God will remember his sacrifice on our behalf. Fourth, we can express our trust. This psalm, as so many of the psalms, move from prayers, from requests, to expressions of trust. And we need to learn to do the same. Got an email from uh, a friend of mine the other day. Every month he sends out a letter to ministry workers. And And he said something quite interesting. He said, his prayers used to be very, very much about asking. And he would find that he would, before he went to bed, he would pray all these asking prayers and then he would be up, awake through all the hours of the night because the last thing that he did before he went to sleep was bring up all the worries that he was facing in life. And he said he had to learn what this psalm teaches us. That is, he had to learn not only to say, Lord, please sort this out, but learn to pray, Lord, I trust that you will. So that he could put his head on the pillow, close his eyes and fall asleep, trusting that the Lord was in control. We need to learn to move from requests to expressions of trust. We can pray for Jesus' kingdom to come. We can pray that God would fulfill his will on earth. We can pray that God will remember the sacrifice of Jesus in our place. But we also need to pray and express our trust that God will do all those things. Trust that God has answered those prayers. God has saved Jesus. We know that. God has raised him from the dead. He's seated him at his right hand and everything will be brought into subjection under his feet. Does the world look out of control to you? It looks out of control to me. COVID is getting worse, not better. Uh, One report this week I saw uh, said that despite the reduction in travel as a result of COVID, the the Earth's vital signs, whatever that means, are looking worse than ever. That is, the climate seems to be changing as rapidly as it ever has. The number of severe catastrophes seems to be increasing. Is the world out of control? It sure looks like it is. What do you do in the face of that? We pray this psalm. We not only ask that Jesus' reign would be established, but we pray, Lord, I trust that you'll do that. I trust that your kingdom will come and your will will be done. That the gospel will go out to the nations and that all your people will be gathered in. We trust that Jesus is sovereign over COVID, 
over the climate, over natural disasters, over governments, over everything. And we know that Jesus will win. We know that those who stand against us will fall and that the Lord will cause us to stand. The devil rules around, Peter says, like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour, but Satan will be destroyed. He'll fall and we'll stand. Finally, this psalm teaches us to trust in God over and above everything else. Just like it would have been easy for the people of Israel to trust in horses and chariots instead of God, it's easy for us to trust in the things that we can see around us and the things that we can collect together in order to give us confidence that we can control our lives and we can control our futures. We can trust in our money or in our intellect, in our wisdom, in our friends or our family, our spouse, our church, our leaders, our government, our home, our job, our hard work. We can trust in all those things. We can trust in anything. But none of those things can or will save us. Some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, some trust in their armed forces, their tanks and ships and submarines. But we trust in the Lord our God. And so as we pray for God to win through Jesus, we need to also express our trust in God over and above all those other things. Lord, I trust you, not my own skills, my own cleverness, not my superannuation, not the government, not our schemes and plans, not my parents. Lord, I trust you. So easy for the world to end up revolving around us. If we win, we win. But this psalm teaches us to recenter our world around the Lord Jesus Christ, God's King. If the King wins, we win with Him. The psalm teaches us to pray for the victory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we, uh, we want to confess that so often our lives revolve around ourselves uh, and around our own concerns. And Lord, to some degree, that must be. We are embodied people and we need to think about our lives. But Lord, the honest truth is that more often than not, we are the sole focus of our, of our thoughts. Uh, and we think about ourselves and our success more than we think about you and the success of your mission for Christ to reign over all and for everything to be in subjection under his feet. And Lord, we just pray that you would forgive us for that, forgive us being so self-focused and recenter and realign our hearts, Lord, on you and what you're doing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that his kingdom will be established in this world, that his kingdom will be established in this town, in this state, in this country, in this church. 
We pray that Jesus' kingdom would be established in our families and in our homes and in our workplaces, in our communities. Lord, we pray that whatever Christ desire as our king, that you would fulfill it, that his will would be done on earth. Lord, so often we think that our desires and our wills are the most important thing Help us to let go of that and to trust in your desire and your will. And Lord, we want to express that we do trust you. We do trust that you will do what you've promised because you've already done that in Jesus. He died, but you raised him to life again. He rose and ascended and is seated at your right hand from where he shall come to judge the living and the dead. Lord, we trust that whatever we see around us, Christ will win. We pray these things for Jesus' sake. Amen.